Hey, this is Mark A. Altman of the 430 Movie. I'm here with Steve Melching, Darren Docterman, Ashley Miller. You know, and if you want to know what Ashley's pick out of the box is, you owe it to yourself to watch the 430 Movie live. You should see the expressions. The only on way tape. to understand the kinds of faces we're making when Ashley does Wednesday is right. to watch us on Electric Now. It's one thing to hear us, but you can't see the expressions on our face. You can't hear disbelief. <laughs> Coming right. soon, our new podcast, Ashley Does Wednesday. <laughs> Ash wow. Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. <laughs> Hey, if you want to watch a great podcast that none of us are on, check out Best Movies Never Made, available every other Monday from screenwriter Josh Miller and producer Steven Scarlatta, as they go behind the scenes of some of the greatest movies never made, with fantastic guests like Steve Melching, Ashley Miller, and a lot of other people you have heard of. And not Darren Docterman. Yet. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you'll be on the show. They just invited me to be on an episode about James Bond. I wonder why. Maybe it's because I have a new book out called Nobody Does It Better, The Oral History of James Bond, available now wherever you get your books. You must learn to listen to the rebel and the rogue, or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. Mr. Scott, will you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago... The bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves. Buttons being pushed. Instrument readings changing. Log supplemental. We have arranged to get the strobilum needed to save Mr. Spock's life. The starship Potemkin has already picked up the drug and will transfer it to a freighter, the SS Huron, for delivery to the Enterprise. Sensor readout, Captain. It's not the Enterprise closing on us, sir. Another starship? You're sure it's following us? It's on an intercept course now, Captain. And at this speed, they'll get us before we get to the Enterprise. I'm picking up metallic debris. Was the Huron attacked? Based on present data, I would say yes. Part to port, Sulu. Let's face them head on. I recognize the ship's markings, Captain. It's an Orion. And we convert the asteroid we're orbiting into a doomsday bomb that will destroy both ships. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And welcome to another episode of Trexperts Briefing Room. And this is going to be a great episode. This is our first episode of the animated series. So it's only appropriate that we have um, one of the great Star Trek fan stories of all time. Um, you know, a lot of you are familiar with uh, Ron Moore, you know, who wrote his spec, uh, The Bonding, and got hired on Next Generation. But there's such a great story for our next guest, Howard Weinstein, who uh, had the last episode of um, second season, ep second season episode of the animated series, The Pirates of Orion, or as some would call it, The Pirates of Orion, <laughs> as we'll as we'll hear. 
And Howard went on to do a bunch of Star Trek novels. He was very active in the early Star Trek conventions. And um, it'll be great to hear his insights. You could say this episode is brought to you by Pfizer and Mordena. It's it's uh, one of the great uh, um, the pandemic stories in Star Trek history, virus stories in Star Trek history. So um, it's only appropriate that we pick this as our uh, first animated episode to do commentary on. So I want to welcome Howard Weinstein to Inglorious Trexpert's briefing room. Welcome, Howard. Thanks, guys. Nice to meet you. Great to see you. So, um, you know, I, uh, I there's such a great story behind, and I know you've told this a lot of times, but it never gets old, I, at least for, for, I think, a lot of the people who don't know. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up at 19 years old having your first episode of Star Trek uh, produced for television. Well, I had been among the first generation of Star Trek fans um, since I was about, let's see, I was born in 1954, so I was 12 when the show came on the air. And I'm firmly convinced that when you're 12, you're very influenced by things that really catch your eye and imagination. And I've seen that in other kids, you know, that I've, that I've met at conventions and, and through conventions and, and other Star Trek related things. So um, I have to say, though, I actually missed the first half of the first season of Star Trek because I confused Mr. Spock with Dr. Spock and Dr. Spock with Dr. Smith on uh, um, Lost in Space. And I had seen about two minutes of Lost in Space, which was enough to convince me that I didn't really want to watch Lost in Space. And then at some point it sank in that, oh no, Star Trek is something different. And I was already uh, very interested in the, in the real life space program, had been since the first missions um, those of us who are old enough remember my weekly reader and scholastic magazines that we used to get in elementary school. And I clipped clippings from the space program and, and saved those. And so when Star Trek came on and I realized that it was a, a, a pretty realistic depiction of what the future of space exploration might be like. So it, I finally dove into it. And, uh, and that way I was not left out of the lunch table discussions in junior high school anymore because everybody was watching Star Trek. Yeah. So I was a big fan of the show and watched with um, disappointment as the third season sort of sank in quality and then finally got canceled. And then of course, you know, we all know the story, Star Trek went into reruns and I lived in New York at the time and Channel 11 WPIX was running the, uh, the reruns basically every weeknight. So I, I coerced my mother into letting me watch Star Trek while I was eating dinner in the den where the TV was instead of eating in the kitchen. And my mother's famous last words were, the world is more than Star Trek. And but she let me watch. And uh, so I, I, that was like um, a, a graduate level course in how to be a Starship captain. So we memorized, and again, something that you do when you're 12 and 13 and 14 is your brains aren't filled with a lot of junk yet. So you start filling it with stuff. And, and so we would all memorize the, the dialogue in all the episodes and, and we would have fun playing Star Trek at school at the lunch table and, and we'd recreate episodes long before there were fan films and we'd record them on audio tape. And when I went to college, I, by then I knew I was interested in being a writer. And so I didn't know if I would ever have a chance to write Star Trek because at that point, obviously, Star Trek was just reruns. But when the animated episodes began in uh, the fall of 73, I watched them while I was at school. And 
I, I was really impressed with the quality. Clearly they weren't doing a kiddie show. They were doing essentially a, a half hour version of live action Star Trek, but in animation, you weren't limited to a few sets and you weren't limited by budget. <clears throat> the other thing that happened during that time period when I was in high school is I started writing Star Trek short stories. Mm-hmm. And um, I would write them and give them to my friends and they would pass them around and read them. And, and I would get some feedback and it was really just for fun because really at that point still, there was no new Star Trek to write for until the animated series came along. And by then I had kind of taught myself how to write uh, TV scripts. And so I did a little research into whether or not I could submit a script. You needed an agent, which I happened to have, which is a whole other story. And I won't really go into that now, but essentially I took one of the stories that I had written in high school called the Pirates of Orion. And I turned it into a script over my Christmas vacation at the end of 1973. And in early 1974, the script was submitted to uh, Filmation Studios. <clears throat> and then I promptly forgot about it because, you know, life goes on. And I was in my senior year at the University of, no, excuse me, junior year at the University of Connecticut. And one day in the spring, my, I've taken a shower in the dorm bathroom and, and my roommate comes in and says, your mother's on the phone. And so I wrapped the towel around me, went into the back to our room, picked up the phone, and my mother yells at me, your agent called, you sold your script. And I'm standing there dripping in the towel in in my dorm room, and I'm thinking, what script? Oh, yeah, the Star Trek script? Holy cow. So I I called my agent. He said, call Filmation Collect, which I did after I got dressed and stopped dripping, and uh, found out that they wanted to buy the script. So when I was 19, um, I became what I think to this day, I think I still hold this record as the youngest Star Trek scriptwriter. It's not a record that's worth much, but but it's it. <laughs> it's deceptive. Well, absolutely. They can't take that away from you. I don't see them hiring any 18 or 17-year-old Star Trek writers anytime in the future. So it's, it's a definitely an interesting distinction. Um, and uh, And then, of course... How, how much did you deal with the, um, the 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 filmation guys with Schuster and Hal Sutherland? Uh, did you deal with them at all when I, they were? Pro- I pretty much dealt only with uh, Lou Scheimer, mm-hmm. who was one of the two founders of the company. And Lou was, he thought I must be a professional writer, which I took as a compliment. He didn't think the script showed any any level of, of non-professionalism. So when I kind of told him, he said to me at one point, phone ringing. Um, at one point, he said to me, what else have you written that I might have seen? So I kind of sheepishly said, I'm 19 and I'm a college student and I'm talking to my <laughs> dorm room and I haven't sold, hey, this is my first script that I've submitted. So he said, oh, so Lou treated me like I was a writer. Um, he didn't make any allowances for the fact that this was that I was a rookie, um, which meant I had to do the work. And most of the work actually came out to be rewriting the ending. Um, I had written this as if I was writing a live action episode that was just shorter. Uh, I wasn't a super animation fan or anything like that. So I wasn't really thinking as visually as you would. When, when we watch the old Star Trek episodes because of budget uh, limitations, 
they most of the scenes were on the ship. Um, very few scenes in any given episode were off the ship, and they were still limited unless they went on location, which they rarely did. And you guys know that as, as well or better than I do. Um, so, you know, there were a lot of briefing room scenes. There were a lot of talking heads. And Lou said to me, let's open it up visually, think more visually. And he was absolutely right. And so the ending originally was basically view screen to view screen with Kirk talking to the Orion captain, uh, each on their own bridge, which honestly, it's how it would have been done in a live action episode because that was what they could afford to do. But in animation, of course, as in comic books, whatever the writer can think of, whatever you can imagine the artists can draw. And Darren, you're an artist, so you certainly are aware of that when you do your work that you've done in design for, for films and television, you're thinking as visually as you can. Sure. So he told, Lou told me, don't worry about it. Whatever you want to do, we can do. Right. And so that's where we came up with the idea of getting them off the ship. Basically, that's what he said to me. He said, get them off the bridge. Right. And so that's where we came up with the idea of having Kirk and the, uh, the Orion captain, um, meet on the on an asteroid to kind of exchange hostage material so to speak and and also duke it out which is what they well, ended up doing why don't um, why don't we watch the episode and okay. we can talk about it while we're while sure. we're watching because i think that would be really cool to directly connect your uh stories with the episode um so why don't we uh why don't we help the uh audience uh, sync up and get your uh, episodes ready Pirates of Orion from the uh, CBS home video uh, uh, Blu-rays, if you have them, or DVDs. Yeah. Now, in previous episodes, we most streaming channels had it ha have uh, Star Trek, but the animated series isn't as available as widely as some of the other shows. So hopefully you have the beautiful Blu-ray set that CBS put out a couple years ago on Blu-ray. If not, it is still streaming on a few streaming, or you can purchase it uh, through VOD, um, but it, I don't think Netflix has the animated series anymore in some of the other streaming channels. Uh, I believe it's still on CBS All Access. So hopefully so, you're spooling up the episode and getting ready to watch this with Howard Weinstein and the Trexpers. So here we go. In three, two, one, play. When I was a kid watching this show, the final frontier. Um, the animated show was actually the first Star Trek I ever saw. So I was used to this opening for the animated show before I started watching Star Trek, you know, seriously. So it was, it was very strange to see, you know, the same thing, but have different music. And it was uh, a little bit of a, a world changer for me when I started <laughs> watching the, uh, the, real, the real thing. Did you ever meet? Um, did you ever ever meet um, Lou Scheimer in person, or was it all know. over the phone? It was all by phone. Mm -hmm. It's funny when the, when Lower Decks started. I noticed they had some echoes of the theme from the original animated series in there, yeah. and I wasn't the only one. When I mentioned that on Facebook, <laughs> people said, "Yeah, they heard it too." Here's your here's your card. The there time. you go. And interestingly, directed by Bill Reed, not Hal Sutherland. Even though at the end of this, Hal Sutherland gets a director's card uh, anyway. 
my understanding is that how Bill Reed directed the second season episodes. Uh-huh. And I guess they just didn't want to bother to change the uh, <laughs> the existing yeah. credits that they were too had. expensive. <laughs> so this way, they just added it to the actual beginning of the episode. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because, of course, the second season famously they basically reused uh, used a couple of scripts that they still had from first season they hadn't produced. Whereas yours was one of the only new scripts that they actually purchased to produce. I didn't know that. Uh, there's McCoy, yeah. who should actually be in sick bay, and now Kirk is calling him in sick bay. So that right. was a little little blooper. Whoops. Well, it's understandable. Jim, coriocytosis is a strange disease and races with iron. Where, where did you come up with the uh, name coriocytosis? <laughs> my my dad was an optometrist, and he took a lot of science classes when he was in school at City College before he went to optometry school after World War II, and he had this this biology book, which was from like 1939. And it was basically biological uh, terms. And I flipped through it one day and I found choreo and then I found psychosis. And I said, I forget what the exact definitions were, but they fit what I thought the disease was gonna be and they sounded good together. So there it was choreocytosis. <laughs> It's not easy because, of course, there have been so many live action episodes with viruses and uh, uh, plagues. And we, we just did Requiem for Methuselah recently. So, um, you know, finding a new Star Trek disease of the week. And then you had mentioned when you first saw the animated series, you were very impressed with sort of how adult it was. Yeah. Um, you, do you remember anything else, you know, any other reaction you had when you, when you first saw the animated series, you know, thoughts about it in general, uh, you know? I was, it was I was relieved that it was as good as it was because we really, nobody knew what to expect. Although we knew that Roddenberry was involved. We knew that Dorothy Fontana was wrangling the scripts. And we knew that all the original actors, but Walter Koenig were coming back to do their voices. And of course you had Jimmy and, uh, and George and Michelle and um, Majel doing any secondary voices for the most part. Right. But I remember yesteryear really stood out and I, as great as an animated episode as it was, I, I almost wish that they had been able to do that in a one hour live action mm -hmm. although they mm -hmm. wouldn't have been able to really show the 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 scenery the sellout. Yeah. as well yeah um but this but the story was so good and that was maybe that was the one that most cemented for me that they were taking the show seriously yeah and that nbc and filmation were were willing to be um we're willing to take it seriously. Yeah, they were willing to make Star Trek be Star Trek rather than dumb it down for. When you one. sold this, uh, did you know that the show was you know going to end at the end of the second season, or were you already thinking about pitching them additional episodes or, or trying to get in for additional episodes? I didn't know that the second season was going to be it. Um, I would have loved to have written for it for a third season, and certainly would have taken a shot at it since I would have been out of college by then. The show aired in the fall of seven in September of '74, which was the beginning of my senior year at UConn. So I think a lot of people. I was I was told along the way that a lot of animated episodes, a lot of animated series, rather only do two or three seasons, and then they just rerun them endlessly because they figure with cartoons especially. 
cartoony cartoons um, right. as opposed to something like Star Trek. They figure the audience ages out and after two years, those kids have grown up and are not going to watch that show again anyway. Sure. So they kind of followed that model with Star Trek. But it was different with Star Trek because Star Trek fans would have written, uh, rather would have watched two or three or four more seasons gladly. Well, one of these days we'll age out of Star Trek. I'm sure it's going to happen <laughs> one day. It's, it's you an know, eventuality. Maybe uh, when we're in our 90s or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> some of us are getting close and we still haven't. <laughs> here's the here's the Huron, um, which is a, a, a really great, you know, little ship design that they did for this. Um, and we're, you know, on, on board the bridge. So this is one of those instances where, you know, we can have a completely different ship and a different set and everything. And it doesn't really cost all that much more. But not different voice actors. Once no. again, we, we see uh, some of our uh, favorite cast uh, doing, doing the voices of the characters, Majel, Jimmy, yeah, Ma George. I, although I don't know who's doing the captain of the Huron. I think it might've been Norm Prescott the other mm. founder of Filmation. I read right. that in a couple of different places. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I, I know he did several voices uh, uh, earlier. He he had a very distinctive voice. That, this guy didn't sound like that to me. I don't know. It's certainly possible, and it's certainly uh, uh, expected that he was doing a, a bunch of those. I would imagine since he owned the company, he worked cheap. He <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> I think he may also have done the voice of the Orion first officer later in the episode. Yeah, because mm -hmm. I, I know the commander is Jimmy doing. Yeah, there were there were two books that came out about the animated series last year. Yeah, um, and they both in, both authors interviewed me, and they both I think they both asked me, did I know who did some of the uncredited voices in this? Because as you say, you can usually recognize Jimmy's voice. Sure. Majel's voice is Majel's voice. Nichelle is pretty distinctive. George is distinctive. But there were a couple that were not distinctive. And and I honestly didn't know. And I think it was in one or both of those books where, where I read that it was uh, Norm Prescott. Yeah. Now, you went on and did a bunch of, of novels. And I remember as a kid just absolutely loving Covenant of the Crown. What was it like for you as a fan to read Alan Dean Foster's adaptation of your story because you know you it wasn't just you know those books obviously they had to expand the half hour format uh and and add add a, a bunch of detail were you happy do you remember what with what alan dean did did uh, and uh to, in in terms of adapting uh your 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 teleplay i haven't read it since it came out in the 70s but i do remember thinking that was that it was fine uh, now mine was in I think there were some of the episodes where he actually expanded them into novels. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, well, yeah, I had to expand them because they wanted to slow down the books being published because yes. they would have been finished too soon. They were selling too well. So Is then mine, he started expanding them into uh, longer stories and padding them with a lot more material. In mine, I think it was still the short story version. Mm -hmm. um, I'd have to look at it again. I don't have it handy. So I don't think he had to expand on it too much, if at all. I should now, you, that you, now that you sorry, mentioned it, I should reread it again. <laughs> do you do you um, remember sort of 
you know, obviously the, uh, the Orion syndicate or the Orions at the time, you know, there'd been the Orion slave girl and, and the cage menagerie. And of course mentioned in important in, in during the Babel, but they weren't considered, you know, they weren't as well known as say the Klingons or the Romulans. What made you, I mean, it's a long time, but sort of gravitating to using the Orions. Um, any idea what the appeal was for you and, and integrating? It's actually a pretty easy answer. Journey to Babel, I think, is one of the probably the top 10 episodes of the original series. Mm -hmm. And I always loved it. I love pretty much anything Dorothy Fontana wrote. She was definitely one of the best of all the Star Trek writers of all the series. Yeah. And she, because there were, there was just the mention of Orion's, they were obviously backdrop to the story. Their, their function as they weren't referred to as pirates at the time, but clearly they weren't exactly on the up and up. And I liked that. And one of the things that I, this was kind of the first time that I ever did something that I did many, many times in the comic books when I wrote the comics for DC for four years, which was about 65 episodes of the original series comic book. There are only so many Star Trek stories to tell. And one of the, I did this in the novels as well too. I would take a little bit of unexplored Star Trek timeline history and I would take that and I would ravel it into a story. And so that's exactly what I did with this. I wanted to expand on how nefarious the Orions really were willing to be. Right. And, you know, in 22 minutes, you can only do so much level of sophistication, but, but I, that's why I chose that. Um, it just, I thought Journey to Babel was a standout episode and I wanted to tell another story about these people who were obviously untrustworthy and underhanded, but what, what else might they do? Sure. It's interesting for a series that isn't considered canon, you know, there's a lot of the animated series that's been adapted into live action. And of course, you know, when you look at it, you were really the first to establish, you know, kind of who the Orions were and give a little life to, to them as these pirates. And then later on, that became a big part of the mythology of Deep Space Nine and Enterprise to a certain extent. And, uh, and even, even more recently, decks. one of the more recent shows. And, and Lower Decks, yeah. Somebody told me after Lower Decks was on, I don't, somebody either told me or asked me, was I the first person, the first writer to refer to them as pirates? Because there was that, um, there was a Lower Decks episode late in the season, for those who saw it, where they specifically referred to Orion pirates, pirates, pirates. And so I kind of thought that was cute. <laughs> Here we I have. Don't know, I don't know if they did it because of they were, you know, tip of the hat to the original animated episodes or because I honestly don't remember if they were referred to as pirates in the other live action episodes. No, I don't think so. I, so I, no, they weren't. It's, Not, just they, this, it's just this episode. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, you know, on Deep Space Nine, they they, they they didn't use the pirates. They were more like uh, criminal criminal underworld kind of thing. But I will say, you know, I, I haven't seen Lower Decks, but I, Mike McMahon, who created it, uh, obviously a huge Star Trek fan. And I guess, you know, there are a lot of call outs and sort of things. So I wouldn't be surprised, given that was an animated series, that it was a direct reference to the animated series. I'm surprised you haven't seen it yet. Yeah, I, 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 I don't, you know, I'm watching the new stuff as much. Um, <laughs> it was fun. I, I thought it was fun. We, we missed uh, 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 Captain Kirk's uh, log where he uh, got to pronounce sabotage 
Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> favorite things that Shatner does. It, well, it sickens you. It, it, no, it didn't sicken me. But it's it's a little strange that uh, it's it's unfortunate they didn't uh, connect with you, the writer, more as they were producing this show, just for the specific pronunciation of the word Orion. Well, look, here's the thing, I mean, about that, and we've talked about this, and that, you know, all the actors recorded their lines separately, and sometimes, you know, on the run, they were, you know, maybe if they were doing a bus and truck tour of Oklahoma, they recorded a sound studio, you know, off on the road. However, however, they all pronounce it wrong. Yeah, they all pronounce it wrong. This comes from the top. This comes from the director and and the producers not, you know, having connection with the recording. And so, what I was told was that anytime there was an alien name or some, of course, Orion isn't really an alien name, but yeah. and they used it obviously in uh, in the live action episode. Sure. But what I was told was someone in Filmation put together a, a phonetic pronunciation guide for each script, so that so that whether it was right or wrong, everyone would pronounce it the same way. Right. Well, it, you know, except for uh, episodes like. Uh, 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 Canicular. More troubles, more and more troubles, more tribbles with the famous, uh, uh, you know, quadratriticale got absolutely right. massacred. Oh, did it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, the, these were done. The recordings for these were done really fast because mm-hmm. they didn't want to pay the actors much, and certainly right. not for more than a day. Um, so they, I think they, I think whatever we got was a miracle that it got done at all. Um, now here's a question about the Orions. Uh, I, I would ask you, because, you know, we, we've heard the stories about Hal Sutherland being colorblind, which is why things like the Kazan are pink. Um, but here, th- if this was Bill Reed and not Hal Sutherland, why do you think that the Orions are not green, which, you know, we've seen, you know, uh, the, the Orions, you know, are all are green. And obviously that's a pretty potent shade of yellow on their uh, costumes. You know, this is funny because I always thought they were green. Yeah. And there was only recently when somebody mentioned to me, no, there, oh, I know somebody, it was probably from the animated, ep- the new Lower Decks animated episode where there was an Orion, or maybe it was, no, it was in uh, Discovery, where we had very blue um, Andorians and very green Orions. Yeah. And I posted a little joke on Facebook of, gee, if they married, would they come out with teal children? <laughs> and that's when somebody said, well, in Pirates of Orion, they weren't green. And I said, what? And then I looked at the, uh, a still picture from the episode and went, son of a gun, they're not green. Yeah. They're a yeah. little tealy. They're not, they're not quite blue. There he is. Um, yeah. it's, I, I call that a turquoise color. So yeah, now, no, they're, they're the same color as the Andorians in the original series. I don't know what the story was on that. Um, I, what I, either what I read or what somebody told me was that they just were looking for bright colors. Sure. And, and it's very possible that while they, the folks at Filmation stuck to Star Trek and, and the established conventions of Star Trek so that fans like us would see this as real Star Trek, they may not have been um, as intimately familiar with exactly what color these aliens were right this was isn't somebody told me that 
again, it came up in that, that Facebook exchange over where my amazement that the Orions in this episode weren't actually green. Right. Somebody said, well, the Andorians were gray um, in yesteryear. And then I watched yesteryear and went, yeah, really, they are gray. So I don't know. <laughs> well, well infinite, the thing is the diversity in infinite comedy. There you go. That's right. It's, it's, it's very diverse in the future. So I think that, um, you know, it's interesting because I think if you saw that on screen, you were an eight-year-old, you'd probably stop and watch the show. So the bright colors may do their job. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm funny, sure. The funny thing is we only had black and white TV till about 1978. So it didn't make any difference to me. <laughs> <laughs> If you look at that green on the Orion's uniforms, that is a green green. That's that is really green. Yeah, the yeah. Frog green. Yeah, that's a frog green. I mean, it definitely has that kind of super friends kind of, yeah. I mean, the kind of thing you would see in a lot of other filmation, uh, you know, so their style book is probably. Of course, the, yeah, the, the filmation's uh, history, they started out doing uh, Superman cartoons uh, and uh you know, that was very, you know, colorful and they, they would always have a very strong uh, uh, color palette for their shows. And of course, they they did, you know, adaptations of uh, the Brady Bunch and uh, uh, Gilligan's Island as well. And so they, they had a, a whole palette of, uh, of styles that they were pulling from. Um, and I think one of the good things about the Star Trek show was that the reason that things stick very closely to the original show is because they had good reference to draw from. All of these images of the Enterprise are basically traced off of frames of the show. Uh, and so, it, you know, they, they, had, they had a guide to follow. Yeah. But, you know, as far as all the people complaining about, oh, the limited animation and, you know, just the, vo the mouths moving. I mean, that, that shot we just saw in the asteroid field with the Orion ship, that's a nice, that's a really yeah, nice beautiful. shot. You know, there's a lot of imagination on display here. Yeah, I mean, I, I love this planetoid. Again, they were trying to make it look visually interesting. Was it was it accurately what an asteroid would look like? Who really cares? Um, exactly. And this was a good note. You talked about this at the beginning of the show. <clears throat> you know, this is fallacy that in animation you can do anything, which is not quite true because you you know you have to create the assets and it's it. But um, but. You also don't want, you know, a bunch of people talking, as you said, on, on view screen to view screen. And th this is this is a great, uh, a great, you know, a great, you know, contest of wills here. And like Darren said, you know, planetoids, it's a beautiful piece of um, of artwork. And the invention of the force field to replace a spacesuit allowed them to put the characters in places where previously they would have had to use environmental suits, which would limit. First of all, it would have made they would have had to do a lot more drawings. Absolutely, and mm -hmm. they it would have limited your your seeing the characters' faces. So it's, that allowed them; it gave them the flexibility to put them on on non class M planet surfaces. It's really good. It, it's it, you know it's that that old thing. The necessity is the mother of invention, and the you know just like the invention of the transporter to you know get the 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 story moving faster uh this you know let you go as you said many other different places and not worry mm -hmm. about drawing the uh, environment suits and do you remember obviously when you watched the episode for the first time obviously this is long before uh, vhs or home video so it's not like they sent you an advanced copy you you literally watched this for the first time on um 
television with your friends, isn't that right? Yep. We had a little mini Star Trek convention in my dorm room, and I had an 11-inch <laughs> black and white TV. And so we had about 30 people crammed into bunk beds and floors and chairs, and there was a dog there. And a couple of my friends brought some sparkling wine and plastic wine glasses. So we, we kind of had a, a, a little half-hour Star Trek convention before there were Star Trek. Actually, no, there had been Star Trek conventions by then. Uh, but yeah, I saw it for the first time, and then I didn't see it again until I bought a 16-millimeter copy from Filmation wow. when it started doing conventions a few years later and uh, library talks and school talks and such. And so I had the 16 millimeter to show and, and that would have been the next time I would have seen it other than maybe seeing it in a rerun once right? between the beginning of 74 and the end of 74. In addition to your lectures, did you, you were involved with a lot of those early Star Trek conventions in New York, weren't you? I mean, I actually went to the very first Star Trek convention in 1972 as a fan. Um, it was in, it was in January, not February. This was the original New York Febcons that ran for five mm. years and established mm. the sort of the, the, the mold for Star Trek conventions. And all of my other friends had gone back to school and I was like the last one who was still home because our vacations didn't uh, coordinate and I couldn't get anybody to go with me. And here's how it's other one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I, obviously the closing credits remain the same and they just didn't want to. Yep. So anyway, so um, I couldn't get anybody to go with me and, and I was damned if I was going to miss the Star Trek convention because I thought, well, there'll probably never be another Star Trek convention. I was wrong about that. <laughs> so I, I, I lived on Long Island uh, in New York and the convention was in Manhattan right across the street from, the, from Penn Station. So I took the railroad in, ran across the street, the convention was on the 18th floor of the Statler Hill. It was mob. That was the convention where famously they expected about 300 people and they got, oh, so they stopped counting at 3,000. They had run out of badges. They were running out of program books. Um, and so I went and I was amazed. You know, I didn't know there were that many Star Trek fans or that many Star Trek products around. And then my vacation from uh, my school Christmas break vacation didn't coincide with when the conventions were, they moved them to February. And so I didn't get to go to another one until 76. Hmm. So I had I'd written to them in 75 and said, and that was after I'd graduated and, um, or somehow I was home and I was willing, I would have been happy to go. And I said, if you, you know, if you want me to do a talk or anything like that, um, I'd, I'd love to, and I never heard from them. So this, the next year in 76, I thought maybe they didn't get back to me because they thought I was angling for a free admission, which I wasn't. <laughs> so I sent them another letter and I sent a check for my membership, which wasn't a huge amount back then. I don't remember what it was. And um, one of the convention committee, a, a lovely then young woman uh, named Elise Rosenstein, I got a very fast response from Elise by phone or rather by letter, she sent me back my check. She was mortified that they hadn't invited me the year before. She said, my letter must have gotten lost or they would have invited me. So they invited me as a full guest. They gave me a room at the hotel and um, it was at the Commodore Hotel. Oh, sure. The, 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 uh, Grand, by Grand Central Station. 
Yeah, yeah. It was later taken over by a guy whose name we won't recall. We won't mention, yeah. That we don't want to evoke the satanic forces. Anyway, so I went back that year in 76. So that was the first time I went to a convention as a guest. And I was all of about 21 years old. And I, I, I was very shy. I'd never done anything like this before. Um, and I, you know, meeting people that I, I had admired, like David Gerald, who was there, and a bunch of the cast were there. Jimmy was there. George was there. Gene Roddenberry and Major Roddenberry were there. Um, I, Isaac Asimov was there. DeForest Kelly was there. So mostly I was just awed by all of this. And I remember one morning, um, they had the convention suite, which was the hospitality suite where all the guests would kind of come to hang out and have drinks and, and snack on things. And I was there for breakfast. And Dee Kelly was sitting at the big dining room table. This was the presidential suite at the, the Commodore Hotel. And Dee was sitting there with his helpers. And by then, he knew a lot of the, the, the young gang who worked to put on the convention. Young, They were about my age. They were high school and college students for the most part, with a few that were older, maybe in their late 20s, or early 30s. And so Dee was sitting there and everybody was talking to him. And I was just sitting there eating my cereal and, and just listening to the conversation. And as we were all kind of filing out to, to go back to our hotel rooms and get on with the day, I was in a little group behind Dee Kelly. And someone near the front door of the con suite said to Dee, can I take your picture, please? And, and Dee was just the sweetest guy, and he never turned anybody down or wanted to talk to him or a picture or have something signed. And so Dee stopped, and his helpers, he kind of put his arms around his helpers, and I said, let me get out of the way. And Dee invited me into the picture, and I said, I'm just one of the little writer guests. And Dee laughed, and he said, well, you know, without you writers, we actors wouldn't have anything to say, which was a really nice thing for him to say. Yeah. And, and I've never forgotten how charming and kind he was. And I've got to tell you, many years later, I was at a convention in Maryland called Shoreleave. And they had um, a lot of guests. Shoreleave has become a giant convention in Maryland, excellent fan-run convention that I recommend to everybody who loves Star Trek when conventions are able to start happening again. Malcolm McDowell was one of the guests and I'd never met him and I was going to be introducing him when it was his turn to do his talk. And I had a 12 year old friend, young lady, um, and, and she had just got her first story published and she was so excited to be there. And I was trying to make her have the best time that she could possibly have. And she asked me if there was any way that she could say hello to Malcolm McDowell. And I said, let me ask him. And so, um, I went over to him and I introduced myself and I said, I don't want to bother you if you just want to kind of want to hang here for a few minutes before you have to go on stage. But I have a young friend who would love to meet you. She's a huge fan. And I said, she just had her first story published. And he said, oh, bring her over. And he was just because Malcolm McDowell plays these really nasty characters. For the He'd be part. very intimidating if you don't he know. Is, absolutely. And, and I was I was didn't know what to expect. I've never met Some him. Ultra violence. He was so, he he was sitting in a big armchair and there was another chair sitting that was next to him that was empty. And he patted the chair and he invited my young friend Calliope to sit down. And she looked like her eyes were just going to pop right out of her head. <laughs> and he said to her, he, was, he made her feel so at ease. And he said to her, I understand you just had a story published. 
And she said yes, and she could hardly get a word out. She was so nervous. Mm. And and then he said to her almost exactly the thing that D. Kelly had said to me 40 years before. He said to her, writers are really important. Without writers, actors wouldn't have anything to say. And I was amazed. And I was so happy that she was there and had that experience and that he was so nice to her. That's lovely. That's a great story. And it just goes to say, you can't tell judge a book by its cover because anyone would think, as you said, <laughs> given the roles that he plays so well, you would not expect Malcolm McDowell to be this charming, delightful, you know, very uh, warm, warm man. So that that's a great story. So I guess that this, you know, having done this episode of animated series really opened the door for you on other, ser- you know, to do the novels, to write the comics for DC. Uh, was it, Do you feel like that was a big part of you selling this stuff, that they knew that you were actually a, a real Star Trek writer and not just somebody, you know, pitching them? I mean, that was, I think, a selling point as well. Yeah. When I, I actually tried pitching a novel to um, Bantam at toward the end of their Star Trek novel license in the mm-hmm. mid-70s. And... I think the editor liked the story enough to send the outline to Susan Sackett, who was the, well, there really wasn't much of a Star Trek office at the time. It was basically Gene Roddenberry and Susan because Star Trek wasn't in production anymore at that point. And the movies hadn't started to get going and there was no new TV with the animated series having finished its run after two seasons. So Susan, apparently, I only found this looking in my notes recently, um, Susan apparently had seen that outline and rejected it. And I don't remember why. I don't have that in my notes. So when um, when uh, Pocketbook, Simon & Schuster, got the Star Trek license a couple of years later, they they were, I didn't know, you know I, I'd never written a novel. I'd never even thought about writing a novel. I really wanted to write a movie and TV script. And so... I thought, you know what? I really want to write more Star Trek stories and this is the only way I'm going to get to do it. So I contacted David Hartwell, who was the, the chief editor. Uh, the line, this, their science fiction line was called Timescape. Timescape. Yeah. And David was hired to basically to launch Timescape as their science fiction imprint. And Star Trek was to be a big part of that. So I got, I was working, I think I was working in Manhattan at the time. This would have been early 78. And I contacted David Hartwell and he said, sure, send me an outline. And I remember going to the office once. I might've actually gone to the office to drop my outline off and to to meet him in person. And um, I know the only thing that got me in the door was that I'd written a Star Trek animated episode, you know, three or four years earlier. Mm -hmm. Because other than that, I had no real writing credits, um, nothing that was going to impress anybody anyway. But this made me a professional writer. It was a network TV show and it was Star Trek. So it became a very useful calling card. And, and I know that's what got me considered because I didn't have an agent at the time. Uh, I didn't have a book agent anyway. And mostly publishers wanted to deal with writers who had agents. They wanted material to be submitted through agents. But David, to his credit, said, well, you've written Star Trek, so let's see what you got. Mm-hmm. And I actually modified the original story that Susan had rejected earlier 
Um, so I must have had notes from what she didn't like about it, what she had wanted to change. Because this time she, I remember, because I, I looked up, I still have the memos um, that were going back and forth between um, Susan in the Star Trek licensing office and uh, the editorial department at um, Simon & Schuster, the pocketbooks and me. And Susan remembered the outline and she noticed the differences, so, um, which was good. Yeah. You don't and want then, to the same thing was it similar for DC? Uh, you ending up, you know, doing that run for DC? Uh, it was a little different because then, by then, of course, I'd been writing Star Trek for a long time, and I was pretty well known in the community. And it didn't hurt that the editor at DC on the Star Trek comics at the time was Bob Greenberger, who was a longtime friend of mine by then. I had met him actually mm. at the first convention where I went as a guest in '76, and Bob was a helper. He was a high school kid. And so we became friends from that. And uh, then he went to work for Starlog and then he went to work at DC. So Peter David, who all Star Trek fans know very well from his several million uh, Star Trek novels and comic books, as well as his other comics for DC and Marvel. Peter had been doing the Star Trek comic for a couple of years. And, and he kind of had his fill of some of the, comments that were coming back from licensing at uh, Star Trek and Paramount. And, and Peter was doing so many other things. So he decided he, he was going to leave the Star Trek series for DC, the original series. And Bob asked me if I would take it over. And I, I said, yes, because I, I loved writing Star Trek. Plus, I learned very quickly that writing comic book scripts is very much like writing a movie or a TV script, which I already knew how to do. However, remember we had talked earlier during the episode about Lou Scheimer telling me, think more visually, get him off the ship. Right. I made the same stupid mistake when I started writing the comics. If I look back at the first few issues that I wrote, I was making that same briefing room bridge kind of pattern. And and I wish somebody had said, no, you don't need to do that. And I would forgotten the lesson that I had learned, you know, 15 years earlier when writing the animated episode. Um, Bob went on to do other things at DC and a new editor, Kim Yale, who unfortunately has since passed away. She sent me a book written by Will Eisner, who I didn't know because I was not a huge comics reader or fan, but Will Eisner was the creator of a long-running old comic series called The, the Spirit. The Spirit, right. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a book which was kind of the Bible of how to write and draw comic books. And Kim Yale sent this book to me without any comment to me, which was nice because she didn't insult me and saying, dude, you don't know how to write comics. Make them right. more visual. I read the book and I went, oh, wow. <laughs> I already knew this, but I forgot that I knew it. Right. So uh, reading that book, helped me open up the visuals in the Star Trek comics that I was writing. And I was much happier with what came out afterwards. And I'm sure the artists that I was working with were much happier with the scripts too, because they weren't just drawing faces on view screens and people sitting around a briefing room table. Right. But, <laughs> you know, sometimes you need to learn lessons twice. Did you ever uh, pitch to the subsequent uh, TV shows? Did you try and pitch to Next Gen or any of the other uh, shows that followed? 
I did, because as you guys probably know, and some fans know, um, Star Trek, when they were doing The Next Generation, after the first couple of seasons, when they kind of finally felt like they had their footing, they did something that no television show was doing at that time, and probably nobody's done since. They opened up story submissions to basically anybody. Right. And they would actually have staff people, obviously the bottom rung staff people, would be reading those stories, and they actually found a few that they bought, either stories or full scripts, that they bought for um, some of the, the next gen and, and later series. Right. And so I took advantage of that, partly because I already had, obviously, a, a bunch of Star Trek credits. And I, I think I sent two scripts, spec scripts, to um, The Next Generation. One of them got me an invitation to pitch because they weren't always buying spec scripts, but what they were looking for were writers who seemed to have a good enough handle on A, how to write a script, and B, how to write a Star Trek script that they would then invite you in either over the phone or um, if you wanted to go to California or if you were already living there to come in and pitch story ideas because mm -hmm. by then most of television was not what I experienced with the Pirates of Orion, which was I wrote a whole script. It was submitted and they bought the script pretty much as I wrote it. And then I did some minor revisions. That's what television was like when I started to be interested in TV writing in the late 60s and early 70s. And if you look at old TV shows, you will only see credited as producers or executive producers, a couple or three or four people. Right. And almost all those scripts were written by one or two people. But if you look at shows now, and really starting in the late 80s and 90s, there are suddenly a dozen people who are on staff and they're writers, they're executive producers, they're consulting producers, they're script editors, they're co-executive producers. The Writers Guild has come up with so many different variations so that you can be a writer but get paid more money than a, a lowly writer by being on staff as one of these production people. But they're basically all writers. And you see many scripts now have two and three and four names on them. Well, I don't think four because I think three is the limit. Um, and there's often somebody writes the story, but somebody else writes the, the teleplay. So television writing has become much more a committee uh, kind of thing than it was when I got started. Um, and so with The Next Generation allowing people to submit, by then they weren't, they were really looking for story ideas that they could then buy as an outline and then have a staff writer write the script. Or maybe if you showed that you knew how to write a script, they might let you take a crack at a first draft and then have a staff writer polish it and finish the script. So the world changed completely in terms of, of what, what, what you were allowed to do as a writer, how you submitted things, how they bought things. Um, so I, I almost sold a, a pitched story idea to Deep Space Nine. Mm. And the writer that I pitched to was a guy named Rene Echeverria, who was a, a new writer at the time, but went on to write a lot of great Star Trek stuff and work on many other series. I think he worked, he may have worked on the, on, uh, the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. 
No, he didn't. He 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 did. He was on Dark Angel, I think Medium. Oh, okay. uh, he just did uh, Carnival Row for Amazon. Oh, oh so yes, yeah, so yeah. he's gone on to have a really good writing career. He was very nice on the phone because pitching on the phone is very intimidating. You're not seeing faces, so you don't know if your story is getting people's interest or if it's falling flat and going plop on the floor. And but he he was very kind and he walked me through it. And he said. He called me back probably a week or two later and said, one of those stories, you know, th think about whether you could come out here to break the story with us. And then I didn't hear from him again. And it turned out that it was kind of swimming around in the pool of potential story ideas, but ultimately it was not chosen, which was disappointing. Um, so the two spec scripts that I sent to the next generation that they didn't buy, I ended up turning into Star Trek novels. You know, writers uh, always say, don't waste a good story idea. So I felt that they were good story ideas. One of them became a next generation novel called Perchance to Dream. Mm -hmm. One of them became my last full freestanding Star Trek novel, which was the original series, um, which was called Better Man, which was a McCoy story, although it had originally been a Picard story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so I didn't get to waste those stories and I got close, but that's the way it goes. Well, you know, obviously... Pirates of Orion holds a very special place in your heart, but uh, what, what's your favorite Trek episode when you look back? I mean, obviously, after all these years, you're still a huge Star Trek fan. What, what's what, what's the episode that is your you know your favorite when you think about all those episodes? That's a really mean question. Ah. <laughs> I you know every time I see somebody post something like that on Facebook or or talk about it at a convention. There, there are a lot of episodes that I like for different reasons. So I, I couldn't, I couldn't in a million years pick one episode that I liked the best. Yeah. If I had, if I could only watch one Star Trek thing, if you said, you know, that old going to the desert island, which desert planetoid disc, pick, yeah. yeah. I would probably pick um, the movie Star Trek for the voyage home, mm. um, because I had a behind the scenes teeny tiny story development role in that movie. And and I just loved the way it came out. And to me, it was quintessential Star Trek. And it was it was exciting and it was fun. And it did a great job finishing that trilogy of Star Treks two, three, and four. Um, if I had to pick a whole season of Star Trek, and again, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but the new CBS All Access series, Picard, I think the first season of Picard in terms of the writing and the, the actors and the, the character development was as good as any single season of any Star Trek series ever. Um, mm -hmm. I really recommend that people, if they haven't seen it, watch it. If you were a Next Generation fan, which I was and a lot of us were, um, the development of what happens to Picard later in his life is amazing. And, you know, Patrick Stewart is truly one of those actors that you would pay to watch him read the phone book. And since he was involved in the development of, of the new streaming series, um, he made sure that they did, they did Picard right. And he shows his age, which you need to have happen since it's 20 years or so since we last saw Picard in the last movie that they did for the next gen group. But it's a great show, and and I can't imagine any Star Trek fan not liking it. So I, I would, can. 
Really? <laughs> so let me ask you a question because you oh, you, you didn't you, like it. You, you briefly you briefly mentioned um, your your involvement in Star Trek. I would say involvement, but it's Star Trek Four. I know that there was some key stuff that you talked to Leonard about. I, I wonder if we can just go back because I think it's a, a story worth noting. Um, if, if, if you know, if you could tell us just about that that moment in time and 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 you know why uh, you know how, how you were able to help with Star Trek Four, and you I do believe you get an acknowledgement in that movie if I'm not mistaken. Um, it was October of '84, so Star Trek Three was was out I think that summer, and I think it was probably still in the movie theaters back in the day when there were dollar theaters, and before everything went immediately to video. Um, and I had just literally a week or two before that gone on a whale watch cruise off the coast of Massachusetts out of Gloucester, Massachusetts. And it was the first time I had done anything like that. And I was amazed. It was a great experience. And so, you know, I'm still planning to write more Star Treks. At that point, I had written uh, the animated episode that we just talked about and my first novel, um, The Covenant of the Crown. And I think I had already just finished writing a V novel with Ann Crispin, uh, the late Ann Crispin, a wonderful writer mm -hmm. who unfortunately died a few years ago. And so I had a few credits and I'm sitting in my office. I worked at the New York Diabetes Association in Manhattan and I'm sitting in my office and, and a guy I know from Starlog Magazine, which was also in New York City, uh, calls me up and, and he's asking me kind of cryptic questions. Um, I think his name was Damon Santo Stefano. And he was uh, the he was the publisher's assistant. Kerry O'Quinn was the publisher, and Dave McDonald was the editor. And Dave was a friend, and my friend Bob Greenberger had worked there at Starlight as well. So anyway, Damon calls me and he says, um, "How well, how familiar are you with the series? How well do you remember Star Trek? Have you seen all the movies? Are you writing any more Star Trek stuff?" And he said, "I can't tell you." why I'm asking you these questions, but are you going to be at this number for a while? And I said, yeah, it's my office. I'll be here. Um, he said, I'll call you back in a little while. So calls me back a little while and says, okay, can you come in to our office and meet with Leonard Nimoy this afternoon? And, you know, after I picked my chin up off the floor, I said, uh, yeah, I think I can do that. <laughs> so I said, hold on a sec. I ran into my boss's office, who was a huge Star Trek fan. And I said to her, can I do this? Can I take the afternoon off? And she's more excited than I am. She says, yes, but you have to make sure that you call me later and tell me what this is what this was all about. So, so I you know, got my stuff together and I, I ran downtown to this, the Starlog offices and, and I was taken into the conference room and, and there's Leonard sitting in there and I hadn't met him before. And I, I'm very intimidated at this point because not only is he Mr. Spock, he's also the director of, you know, the last movie and, and clearly a, a power in the Star Trek hierarchy now. And I wasn't even quite sure why I was there. And so Leonard explained he had been meeting with writers and scientists around the country to the term he used, stir the pot of ideas for Star Trek IV. Mm -hmm. um, so at that point, I knew there's going to be a Star Trek IV. And he he's probably going to be directing it. And so that was what it was about. And it was a, a two or three hour meeting. We just batted ideas around. I gathered from the, the conversation that they were going to do time travel, but they hadn't completely settled on why they were time traveling. And because I had just gone on this whale watch cruise, 
I, I, and remember, I had no preparation for this meeting. Right. <laughs> I was just, I couldn't do it today, but you know, I was 30 then and I was, I, I had a, I guess I thought faster than I think now. And so we're just batting things around. I got over being nervous pretty quickly um, because Leonard was a, a nice person. He didn't, he didn't lord it over. Damon was in the room too. He didn't lord it over us. He just talked to us like another person. And he clearly was a very big Star Trek fan as well as being, you know, an actor and a director. He knew Star Trek inside and out. And that impressed me. He had a fan's knowledge of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many of the other actors would have been able to make that claim. But his familiarity with what made Star Trek work really impressed me. And so I tossed out this idea about what if you, what if they go to a planet where there are these whale-like creatures that have been hunted for, for hundreds of years for food, and they suddenly find out that they are co-equally intelligent creatures. What does that do to a society? And how would the enterprise crew be involved in that? Now, to this day, because we talked about many other things, to this day, I don't know if that's why whales were in the movie. I, I can't make that claim. I have no <laughs> clue because I know he talked to cetacean biologists and whale experts. I don't know if he talked to them before me or after me. Um, there was something that they had talked about. Uh, I don't remember if we talked about it in, the, in this meeting in October of 84, or if I read that Leonard had talked about it some, at some other time. But there was a, a, a concept called the keystone species. What if you remove one species from an ecosystem, a planetary ecosystem? What if that keystone species is so important that everything else collapses around it? And of course, that essentially was the idea of Star Trek IV. The whales are gone from the 23rd century, and the probe comes back and wants to talk to the whales, and the whales aren't there anymore. So the, the probe isn't thrilled about that. Um, so I again, I... Now, Leonard, at the end of the, the session, at the end of the, the three-hour meeting, oh, there was a funny story. He, he picked up the phone in the office and he called his wife. I guess they had an apartment in New York at the time. This was his first wife. And he calls and he's going to tell her that he's going to be late and he'll be home soon. And the look on his face as he's hearing the person on the other end of the phone, uh, he says, it sounded, I could hear, it sounded like somebody speaking Spanish. And, and Leonard said, oh, I'm sorry, I must have dialed the wrong number. And he hangs up the phone and he sort of laughs. And I said to him, that's somebody there who will never know who they just spoke to. <laughs> and so he got hold of his wife. Anyway, so he said, well, if you, you know, I'd be happy to pay you for your time. Um, and I said, well, you know, uh, that's okay. This was really enjoyable for me. And, and that's not necessary. I probably should have let them pay me. But... <laughs> I got the impression that I could submit a story idea. He didn't say that in so many words, but he didn't say I couldn't. And I probably was not forward enough to ask that question, but I did have an idea. And within a week, I had written an outline for, for a Star Trek IV story. And I contacted him and he said, he, he'd let me down gently. He said, well, I'm sorry I didn't make it clear in the meeting but we have a couple of writers we're already working with. Um, and then he gave me some really good advice 
This was in a letter, which I still have and which I posted on Facebook after he died because it showed what, a, what, the, what, what kind of person he was. Um, and he gave me some, some good advice on how to you know, build and pursue a screenwriting career. And I didn't waste that story. That became my next Star Trek novel, which was called Deep Domain, which was about whale-like creatures on another planet being killed <laughs> for food for hundreds of years. And now, oh, they're intelligent. And what does that do to a civilization? And how does the enterprise get involved? Right. Um, but when I submitted the story idea, now pocketbooks loved the story idea and I wrote the book. And when it was submitted to Paramount, and I don't remember if this was while it was in the outline stage or whether it was in the manuscript stage, but they basically went, oop, this is really close to Star Trek IV. You're gonna have to make some changes. Um, also, uh, Leonard extended an invitation to me that if I happen to get to California, please give him a call and stop by the office. So now that was October of 84. So in the spring of 85, I happened to be, I made my first trip to LA and I got in touch with him and he said, sure, come on over. And when I was there at his office on the coffee table was a New Yorker cartoon and anybody who's familiar with New Yorker cartoons knows they're dry and witty and clever and they're one panel. And they're almost always brilliant. And this one was two whales swimming next to each other. And one says to the other, but can they save themselves? Because that, the, that was the era of the Save the Whales right. movement. People were trying to make sure that whales didn't go extinct, which was obviously what Leonard picked up on and Har Bennett picked up on and and the screenwriters who worked on Star Trek IV, the one with the whales, as people like to call it. And so when I saw that cartoon, I knew for certain that whales were going to be in the movie. And Leonard sort of cryptically said in, in this meeting in the spring of 85, yeah, we're going to do whales in the movie, but I can't tell you exactly how. So I was glad to hear that. And again, I didn't know what my contribution was. Um, and I was able to visit the set in the spring in the spring of 86 when they were shooting. And so that was really fun because that's really the only time I've been on a movie or a TV set soundstage when they were working. And I was fortunate enough to be there uh, during the week when they were shooting in the big water tank in the mm -hmm. Paramount parking lot. And I got to see them shooting the, uh, the scenes where they were climbing, where the crew was climbing out of the bird of prey after it's crash landed in San Francisco Harbor. And so, um, if you watch the, the DVD of Star Trek IV and you stick with it through the credits, there are outtakes, including a scene where just Jimmy Doohan is climbing out of the bird of prey and kind of trying to climb down. Keep in mind, this is a soaking wet, full-size model of the bridge section of the bird of prey. And there's, there, the wind machines are blowing, the water is blowing, and Jimmy lost his footing on the soaking wet, slippery bird of prey. And he goes bouncing down the bird of prey and he lands in the water. And that scene is actually in the outtakes at the end of Star Trek IV. And I remember after they were looking at the video um, off the set to the side of the set, later on, they took a lunch break and then they came back and Jimmy was standing there with his agent. And as they're watching Jimmy bouncing down on this little video monitor, bouncing down the bird of prey and landing in the water, his agent calls out, stunt pay for Mr. Doohan. <laughs> so being there, you know, getting to see some of the behind the scenes stuff was really, really fun. And, and that all came from 
you know, I, I tracked it back. It all came from writing the Pirates of Orion and then writing the Covenant of the Crown novel. And then, of course, getting asked to, to meet with Leonard. So, and yeah, so um, at the, at the uh, just about two weeks before the movie was released, um, the publicist at Paramount who was working on the movie, a, a nice guy named Eddie Egan, who went on oh, to be a, a big studio executive. I don't know where he is now. We had him as a guest on this show. Here. Yeah, he was really nice. And he was a great guy. And so he called me and said, congratulations, you've been immortalized in film. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you're in the credits. And I said, oh, that's really cool. So if, you, if you're really, really patient and you watch a really, 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 really lot of credits, <laughs> you get to the point at the end of Star Trek IV where they go, the producers extend special thanks to, and I'm in there. So that's, that was very cool. So that's why I always felt like it was, it was quote unquote, my movie. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Well, Howard, this is terrific. And we're so uh, appreciative of you joining us to take this sort of trip or trek down memory lane. Look at this, this episode. It's a, such a great story. And I, I think for, it's such an inspirational story for those young fans who, you know, are looking to get their foot in the door to sort of see the success that you had and, you know, how, you know, it, it, it led to so much in the Star Trek world. So, um, you know, thanks for, you know, going back and looking back at, at all, all this great stuff. And, and after all these years, here you are still a big fan of Star Trek. You haven't lost your love of the franchise. Which I haven't. And, great. you know, I look back and I go, if I had tried to do this earlier or later, I probably wouldn't have been able to get where I got with it. Mm. Um, it was just exactly the right time. It was when Star Trek was still open to new writers in, in certain ways. And it was also the beginning of the conventions and going to the conventions was huge fun in those days, especially because when there was only one cast, the original cast, they came to all the different conventions. So um, people like me, writers and other people who had worked in other ways in and around Star Trek, we actually got to spend a lot of quality time with some of the original cast and got to know them as friends. Uh, which was a, a real privilege and, and a real enjoyable kind of backstage thing to get to do. So I consider myself very fortunate to have been involved with Star Trek the way I was when I was, because it was a singular moment in time that couldn't have happened before and won't ever happen again. So I was lucky to be there when I was. Thanks, guys. Well well put, we, well put. We feel privileged to have shared this time with you as well. Thanks for the chat. Thanks to Howard and thanks to um, our uh, production associates, Zach Raggetts and uh, Peter Holmstrom, uh, our sound engineer, Bill Ritter, and his associate, Mark Rivera, and of course, our producer, Natalie Miscali. And um, if you want to follow uh, Inglorious Trexperts on the web, you can uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, you can watch all new episodes of Inglorious Trexperts on Electric Now. Uh, download the free app wherever you get your apps. Um, and we'll be back next week. Uh, at 10 o'clock on Friday with an all-new episode of Inglorious Trexperts. But until then, we want to thank Howard. And on behalf of Darren and myself, keep on trekking, ingloriously, of course. And the briefing room is closed. Mr. Scott, what do you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, bridge control started going crazy. Leave us shipped in by themselves. 
buttons being pushed. Instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened. As if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.